Hello, Tim Williams here. I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Thanks for choosing to listen to one of our archived episodes from our early days of launching the show. Although I love the overall content of these episodes, I will say the recording quality was not always the best as the show was still evolving and I was learning to record and edit pretty much on the fly. I believe the sound quality and editing has improved from season to season, so be sure to check out more great episodes in our more recent seasons. I hope you enjoy this episode and that it rekindles all those warm and fuzzy nostalgic feels. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Hello movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast where we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we've discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what film we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes facts about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. In 1988, Eddie Murphy reteamed with Trading Places director John Landis to make his tour de force multi-character playing masterpiece known as Coming to America. It officially made Eddie a bona fide movie star and gave us one of the most memorable and most quoted movies of the decade. That's beautiful. What is that, Velvet? So today I have my good friend Ron West as my co-host. Say hello, Ron. Hello, everybody. So glad to be back and such an obvious upgrade over the last guest. (laughs) And Jeff will be so happy to hear you say that. Shout out to my dear friend, Jeff Tinkle. Yeah. So this is Coming to America. This is actually one of the movies that Ron requested to be a guest host on. So I know that it's one of his favorites. But before we jump in, tell us a little bit about your first experience with Coming to America. Did you see it in the theater or how did you experience it for the first time? Saw it in the theater twice. The movie came out in the summer of 1988. And during that time, uh, we had moved to Florida a year earlier but all of our family was still in West Virginia and my friends that I grew up with were in West Virginia. So we went back to West Virginia frequently. So I literally saw coming to America in Florida the day it came out. The next day we drove to West Virginia. And the day after that, I saw that with one of my best friends in West Virginia. So I'd seen it twice within the first three days of it coming out in 1988. Okay. Yeah. I, don't have a memory of seeing it in the theater, but I know I saw it. I must have seen it on VHS, but I had to have seen it like several times because I, even watching it again yesterday, there was so much that I remembered, even though I haven't watched it in probably at least 10 or 15 years, like all the way through. I mean, I've seen bits and pieces when it's on TV. You know, if it's on, I'll, I'll leave it on for a little while, watch a couple of scenes. 
But to actually watch it from beginning to end, it's been a long time since I've seen it. So how long has it been since you watched it before you watched it yesterday? Well, the funny thing is, we, as you know, we are getting ready to move. Right. So we've been packing up the house. And last weekend, I uncovered a box underneath a bed <laughs> that had about 12 VHS tapes. All right. That I had kept over the years for a variety of reasons. And coming to America <laughs> was one of the tapes. Now, I chose not to keep it any longer. The old VHS right. tape for that is not worth anything. Although the original Star Wars on VHS tape before Lucas had the, added the additional things were in there. I, I kept that one. Smart man. Yes. But um, I had it on VHS. Mm-hmm. I know I have it in our DVD collection. Right. And I had watched the second half of the movie, not the entire thing, as you were just referencing, second half of the movie about two weeks ago, changing the channels, and it was on, and Denise and I, uh, my wife, happened to uh, sit down and watch the entire thing and and enjoyed shouting out the quotes that were about (laughs) to come uh, before they came from the actors' mouths. Yeah, Tyra, my wife Tyra actually watched it with me yesterday, so... And because she had different things going on, we had we watched like the first 45 minutes, then had to stop and then picked it back up and watched another 30 minutes. And then we watched the last 20 minutes last night. So which I would have liked to have seen it all the way from start start to finish. But because I hadn't seen it in so long, I didn't mind, you know, taking the breaks. But, but yeah, there was a lot of we were both quoting a lot of stuff before it happened or like as it was happening because we've seen it so many times. So. Well, let's jump into uh, the movie and who directed it and who wrote it and all that fun stuff. So uh, we'll talk about the director, John Landis. He was coming off of three box office disappointments, Into the Night, Spies Like Us, and Three Amigos, and a lengthy legal battle over the unfortunate deaths of actor Vic Morrow and two child actors during a helicopter crash during filming Twilight Zone, the movie. Eddie Murphy had originally planned to direct himself, but decided to help Landis out by convincing Paramount Pictures to allow him to direct the movie instead. But Landis and Murphy ended up not getting along very well during filming, and although both parties have differing accounts as to what actually happened, they didn't work together again for six years when they reconciled before making Beverly Hills Cop Part 3. Landis didn't have any other blockbusters after coming to America, and actually has only done more directing for TV since then. Any uh, John Landis, one of your favorite directors, or any well thing you want to add to that? I I knew that one of the reasons Murphy picked him for this was because they had had such a good working relationship, right? Trading places in 1982, right. and uh, that's also why uh, spoilers as we're jumping ahead. There's the shout out to Trading Places in this movie, right? With right. Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy uh, reprising their roles as the uh, the uh, billionaire tycoons who mm-hmm. lose all their money uh, in this movie. And it's because Eddie Murphy and John Landis had done Trading Places together. Right. And you're right. There are quite differing uh, accounts as to why they did not get a- along in this movie, uh, <laughs> uh, depending on if you ask Eddie Murphy or ask John right. Landis. Yeah, I almost had wanted to include those, but because... I don't know if either story is 100% accurate. I decided to just leave them both out. I said, if you look, if you want to know the behind the scenes stuff, as far as that's concerned, there's plenty of articles out there on the internet that you can hear both sides of the story. 
You but the good the good news is they did reconcile, even though Beverly Hills Cop Three was not a great movie, <laughs> it's still uh, it was still good for them to reconcile and work together again. Sure. So uh, as far as the writing, uh, David Sheffield, one of the film screenwriters, said Murphy came up with a concept which he had actually scribbled out on eight to ten pages of a yellow legal pad. A year before the film was released, Murphy had signed a five-picture deal with Paramount, estimated in the millions, but the studio had yet to settle on a summer film. That is, that is until Coming to America. Sheffield, along with his longtime Saturday Night Live collaborator, Barry Blostein, or Blostein, I'm not sure, wrote the script in five weeks. Labor Day weekend, they handed the script in, the studio called first thing Tuesday morning and said, we're shooting in January. They said it was a whirlwind experience. Experience. Close enough. Close enough. So, Although there is, uh, there is some controversy. I don't know if you want to get to that later about yeah. the, the origination of the movie. Right. Uh, so there was a gentleman that, that claims that he submitted the original idea that would yep. later become coming to America to Paramount. And in fact, he later sued Paramount and won. Mm-hmm. Yep. However, that nothing about that was uh, discrediting to Eddie Murphy, as it was right. basically, from what I could tell, he did not know Paramount had that information, and it appears as though Eddie Murphy's idea was was on his own. And uh, what would lend credence to that is that it, it is still listed solely as story by Eddie Murphy. Right. And right. often when someone wins a lawsuit like that, you'll see it forever changed and their name will be added to that credit. Mm-hmm. But it is still story by Eddie Murphy only. Yeah, I think the details are they basically settled out of court for a specific amount. And I'm sure that uh, by settling us out of court, that was probably part of that settlement that Eddie Murphy would continue to have the rights as the story by credit. But yeah, his name was Art. Buckwald, who actually won the breach of contract suit, and uh, he had a treatment called King for a Day, which he sold to Paramount in 1983. But his character was more of a despondent, uh, not a very nice African prince. Um, so that's why, according to producer Robert Walks, um, admits that there were similar ideas floating around Paramount at the time. But he insists film, Murphy's film was original. He actually said Paramount had a story about a king who was a despot. And I told Paramount we weren't interested in making that movie. We wanted Eddie to be the good guy to have morals and ethics. So, um, you know, it's one of those great mysteries. But there were actually five lawsuits uh, that came up against Coming to America. One by an actual African prince who claimed that Eddie Murphy, quote unquote, stole his life. Yeah, I saw that one. <laughs> that one did not get a lot of traction, though. No, no. I actually kind of remembered that story when I went back and was looking at it. I remembered that story floating around, uh, you know, back in the day when it was well after it had been in theaters. Because I think most of these came out like several years later. I mean, nothing came out, I think, right as the movie opened. It wasn't right. until it really made a lot of money. Right, because the movie blew up and made a, a lot of money, more than what was anticipated. And then, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. After success is when the lawsuits always follow, so. Right. But, yeah, knowing that these guys wrote for Saturday Night Live, you can definitely see 
the Saturday Night Live influences in the story, yeah, good or bad. Uh, I think there's parts of the movie that feel like independent sketches, not really so much moving the narrative forward, but because they work and they're funny, I let them slide. What about you? Did you, well, speaking of them writing the movie and working for Saturday Night Live, did you read the part where, um, and I know there's a couple of different stories about how they came up with the name of Zamunda, Mm -hmm. Uh, but the most popular one being that they uh, took the name of Bob Zamuda, Mm -hmm. who was a writing partner of Andy Kaufman, uh, Mm -hmm. famous comedian, and uh, they were good friends with him and loved his work. And so they took Zamuda and and just, in their words, made it sound like a more like an African community. And that's how they came up with Zamunda. Yeah, I did see that because there's there's another alternate theory that Eddie Murphy came up with it from us sketch that uh richard pryor. richard pryor had done yeah so this was a fun, this was an interesting one to research because there are a lot of differing stories uh on several things in the movie but i was also surprised that there's not a whole lot of specific behind the scenes stories that can be corroborated confirmed so, yeah. so this was a, this was an interesting one to put together so let, you want to talk about the cast next? Sure. Let's talk about the cast. A couple of people, this is their first uh, appearance in a movie. First right. Movies. Sherry Headley, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Garcelle Bouvet. Um, I do think it was funny that when, when I was doing some of my research about this, there is a common um, kind of urban legend that this was Samuel L. Jackson's first movie. And this right. was actually he had, he had already made eleven movies by the time that he, <laughs> you know, Samuel Jackson's made like eight thousand four hundred. Right, movies. right. And uh, yeah, this definitely was not his first his first role, but that's one of the 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 little the trivia questions about it. There are a lot of people because this is probably the first thing they remember seeing him in. Right, right. Uh, but uh, he plays the robber of McDowell's mm-hmm. uh, in this movie that gets taken out by Eddie Murphy's character Akeem. And there was an interesting story that John Landis actually, they had to work with him because he didn't think he was threatening enough. And I'm like, how do you tell Samuel <laughs> Jackson he's not threatening enough? So maybe he's owned it a little bit more since then. But <laughs> what he could, it's a PG 13 movie. He couldn't drop 87 uh, F bombs. No, he, it was that, it was rated R. Was it R? Oh, yeah. And he dropped oh. the F bomb in that well, scene. I'll, yeah, but I only remember him dropping one. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Typically, he'll drop, he'll begin the sentence in the middle oh, of the yeah, sentence yeah. and the end of the sentence. Right, right. Uh, and that's uh, certainly not the case, not the case here. But no. Um, what else about the cast uh, did you like? Did you enjoy? Well, I mean, of course, you know, Eddie Murphy is a star. Um, he plays multiple characters. This was the first movie <laughs> where he plays multiple characters and working with uh, Rick Baker, the great special effects uh, or makeup artist can you name the other movies he has played multiple characters in uh the, three other ones there's three other ones norbit norbit is one uh the uh nutty professor Nut- and hercules, the hercules you're right uh what was the other one i probably both bowfinger bowfinger right 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 so uh yeah actually uh so according to john landis it was his idea to have eddie murphy wear makeup to play the Jewish man, uh, Saul, as sort of a payback for Jewish comedians who wore blackface in the early 1900s. 
Oh, wow. I did not see that part. That is outstanding. Yeah. And I got to tell you, as a kid seeing this in the movie theater mm-hmm. and, you know, this is all we're used to staying for credits and things now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Marvel has done for us. But at the time, you mm-hmm. know, this started right at the beginning. And I remember the first time seeing it standing up and then they start showing the different people. Right. Setting back down. And when they the Jewish character comes up and it said mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy. Everybody in the theater, like, that's not Eddie Murphy. That's <laughs> right. not Eddie Murphy. Right. And then he tells the little joke about the, you know, the, the spoon and the soup right. and right. everything. And then uh-huh. so when, I, when I saw it two days later, again, you know, I was telling everyone, sit down, stay, stay, stay. You got to see this. Right. You got to right. see this. Because you knew this crazy thing where Eddie Murphy had played this old white Jewish guy and you didn't know it was him. The other characters, when you saw the movie, you knew, oh, the lady in the nightclub, the unattractive lady, that's clearly Arsenio Hall. Right. And, right. Um, the preacher is Arsenio Hall and uh, uh, Randall Watson. That's <laughs> a chocolate. That's clearly Eddie Murphy. Right. The right. two guys in the barbershop, again, are clearly Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. But you had no idea that that Jewish guy was Eddie Murphy. And that was such a great reveal uh, when it occurred. All right, so maybe you can corroborate this story because I couldn't find it anywhere online. But I think when Rick Baker was a guest on the Fat Man Beyond podcast, he told the story about that the executives didn't want them to do the Jewish character. Or maybe it was all the, or they didn't want Eddie Murphy to play all the different characters. But Rick Baker did him up in the Jewish costume, makeup, and had him go to the executives and have a meeting. And they spent like about 20 or 30 minutes talking to them. <laughs> and then he said, oh, by the way, this is Eddie Murphy. And they didn't believe him. And then when he took the makeup off, they they agreed at that point that they would let him do the character. I do remember that story. And so it probably was from Fat Man, Fat Man on Batman or Fat Man Beyond. You're right. It's the same podcast that you and I uh, listened to with Mark Bernard and, and Kevin Smith. Shout and, out. Yeah. There's a couple of podcasts that we both listen to, uh, but it's most likely that's the one that came yeah. up. I do remember that story as well. Yeah. Cause I looked in several different places for that, you know, for that story. And I was like, I know that's true. I know I heard it. And then I was like, Oh, I remember Rick Baker being a guest on that show. And I think he told that story. So, um, so if you want to hear that story, you can find that uh, on their podcast, but be warned. Uh, not for not for kids and not safe for work. It will be the Samuel L. Jackson uh, version yeah. of the podcast because there will be lots of f bombs, lots of references to drug use, right? And, uh, uh, Other yeah. things we won't mention on this podcast. Exactly. So, uh, of course, Arsenio Hall as Simi, Reverend Brown, Morris the barber, and as it's stated in the credits, <laughs> extremely ugly girl at the nightclub, which he is. Yeah, <laughs> Arsenio Hall makes an extremely ugly woman. <laughs> right. Uh, of course, John Amos, more famously known as James on the TV show Good Times as Cleo McDowell. I thought he was great. Uh, James Earl Jones as the king. And did you know that Sidney Poitier was originally considered for the role? I did not. And I am so glad that was James Earl yeah. Jones. <laughs> yeah. That would have been a totally different take if it was Sidney Poitier. James Earl Jones, did you see the, or, or in your research, pick up on the Darth Vader shout out in Coming yes. to America? Yes. With the line, um, yep. very, very similar, where in Star Wars, mm-hmm. yep. 
and I'm, I'm stealing your line, uh, I think. No, uh, go for it. Um, in Star Wars, he says, no, leave them to me. I will deal with them myself. And then as King Jaffa, he says, no, do not alert him to my presence. I will deal with them myself. And it's like funny. A, yeah. Very similar line. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, as a shout out to, to Darth Vader. And it was funny because when I was watching it before I did the research, when he said that line, I was like, man, that sounds so much like something Darth Vader would say. <laughs> so then when I found that little uh, blurb in the trivia, I was like, well, I guess I picked up on that, especially now seeing Star Wars a lot more than I did when I originally saw them uh, coming to America. So uh, the other cool thing was Madge Sinclair, yep. who plays the queen, uh, her and James Earl Jones would later go on to voice King Mufasa and Queen Sarabi in Disney's The Lion King in 1994. <laughs> and I did not know that. And yeah, as I, I was either. researching it, which I was researching it partly while I was watching the movie and I saw it. And then now every time I hear her voice, I cannot hear the Lion King. <laughs> like, that's that's it, it's so obvious yeah. that she was the queen in Lion King as well. Uh, and that's and that just makes me love that Disney did that uh, yeah. in the early 90s when they made Lion King. Yeah, smart. So and then uh, you mentioned Sherry Headley as Lisa McDowell. Do you know who was the early contender for her role? Uh, I do not, but I'm going to blindly say... I wish they had gone with whoever the other contender was for the role. <laughs> Not really a Sherry Headley fan. We can circle back to that. Who, who right. Was it? They were actually trying to get Vanessa Williams. <sighs> I would have loved that. Yeah. So even when I watched this, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but even when I watched this as, as a Ute, as Joe Pesci would say, <laughs> uh, I remember watching and thinking, really, that's who he came to America to find? Sherry Headley? Right. Right. Because all three of the flower girls – Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like all three of them are. If we're just gonna go off, you know, physical appearance, and obviously he was looking more just physical appearance, right? But all three of them were prettier, and uh, um, oh, the the one that was picked to be his Vanessa Bell, just Vanessa Bell at the time, not Vanessa Bell Calloway, right? Uh, as well, and I was like, I'll he, he could have stayed with any of the four of them before coming to America to find uh, Sherry Headley, right? But that's just my personal opinions and I would have loved Vanessa Williams. Yeah. But I wondered, and I thought this a long time ago and I have nothing to back this up, but I wondered if they, they didn't want her to be too pretty because they wanted him to kind of love her for her personality and oh, plainer. You know, that, yeah. That kind of thing. Um, because he was used to all the beautiful, you know, quote unquote, beautiful women in Zamunda. And so uh, I don't know. Once again, I don't know if it's true, but you could you could you could take that that route if you want to. Well, that would make sense. And uh, but, even her sister in the movie, I always thought was oh yeah yeah uh, cuter than her. Yeah, I, I did think the sister was cuter than she was. Uh, but did you know? Speaking of the uh, the flower girls, the ladies in waiting, did you know that one of them was Garcelle Beauvoir, who would later star alongside Jamie Fox on his self titled TV show. Right, that was her first. Um, yeah, I mentioned her earlier with people with their first uh, movie okay. appearances, and this and she was one. Uh, yeah, she 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 has a couple of the. I think she may be the only of one of the three flower dropping ladies that speaks in the movie, and she she has one or two small lines. Yeah, and I don't I don't think the other two have any lines. I think they they all have the one line of 
good morning, your highness, or oh, something right. like that. Right. Yes. But my wife and I both laughed when they had like, talked talk about that scene at the end where they were doing the credits and they showed the three. And my wife was like, Feather. feather? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Who is Feather? Yeah, I don't think Feather's gone on to do much of anything no. else. I would, remember, I would remember her name. Yeah. Uh, she thought she was going to be way bigger than she turned out to be, I guess. I'm going to yes. be Feather like Madonna. Yeah, she went with one word. Now, there was another one word actress in this movie when I was doing research that uh, turned out to have a very different career. Oh, okay. I'm not sure if you saw that one. I missed that one. I think. The, the bather uh, oh, okay. apparently has gone on to become quite the porn star. Oh, okay. Oh. So uh, I thought that was, she was a one name, uh, one word name person as well. Oh, okay. And then we had this kind of discussion uh, yesterday. I guess after we had finished watching it, you were still watching it. But let's talk about Eric LaSalle as Daryl, <laughs> most famous for his role as Dr. Peter Benton on the ER. show ER. Yeah. So I asked, I took a little straw poll as, as you and I uh, watching this movie would not have been uh, struck by uh, <laughs> who's, who's a good looking and handsome man. Right. Or maybe I should speak for myself, but I'm, uh, I'm going out on the ledge there and saying you would have been as well. So, um, Asked my wife and your wife, took a little straw poll, and, and was informed that, oh, yes, the ladies at the time uh, would have been like, ooh, who is he? Ooh, that's Eric LaSalle. Ooh, that's, uh, uh, you know, that definitely knew who he was, mm-hmm. um, um, if not before the movie, then during that movie, that he was considered uh, quite the uh, quite the heartthrob. There. Right. He definitely was by the time they got on ER. I don't, I don't, I don't remember anybody really gushing over him during the movie, but. Well, he, and he also, I, I think, I mean, he doesn't get a lot to do in this movie. Right. That's true. His, his acting skills. I mean, he's just playing kind of a, you know, slimy kind of, sh- you know, schmarmy, you know, jerk, but he does that really well. In the movie. He, what yeah. he's asked to do, he does really well. Which oh, yeah. You can see the, that he's, you know, got some real, uh, acting ability. The only other thing that I remember seeing Eric LaSalle then, before then, and someone out there listening to this podcast maybe will respond to us and let us know if they remember this. There was one of those cheesy mid-80s movies, because there was Breaking, there was Breaking 2, Electric <laughs> Boogaloo, there was Beach Street, right. and then there was one called Rapid. Rapid, with, uh, yeah. The, the main character was Mario Van Peebles, but Eric LaSalle was one of uh, his friends in in the movie okay and uh one of his hangers hangers on and i could actually drop one of his little verses for you right now if i was so inclined go for it no we'll keep this moving (laughs) but uh when we review rapping you have to do it for that episode (laughs) because eventually that's great and and that'll be that'll be a that'll be a hard watch but uh uh, i watched beach street uh about six months ago oh really actually wasn't bad i mean the acting's terrible right for the most part, but the story's pretty good. Ray Don Chong is in that, and she she does a fairly good job. Oh, yeah. But um, anyway, we're getting off top off topic. But yeah, Eric LaSalle does a great job as the uh, as the king or the prince of Soul mm-hmm. Glow. Uh, yep. That's just Soul Glow. I'm glad Sorry. you did it, not me. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting for I'm waiting to get to uh, uh, Paul Bates. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, to to drop. Well, I'll just go ahead and drop it. She's your queen to be. <laughs> and it's the first time I ever really paid attention to all the lyrics. Oh yeah, yeah. Song. And yeah. when he said "free from infection," <laughs> oh, I started laughing. I said, like, "Wait a minute, you're singing at the at the engagement party? Right, she's right. free from infection, right?" 
And I think that's one of those things where like people were laughing so much just from the beginning of that that song that I think we laughed our way through the end. Missed the lyrics. Really hear the rest of the song because I had we I had the same thought. I was like, I had no idea it said all this stuff at the end. Oh my goodness. Oh, but yeah, it, speaking, it was great. speaking of the song, the uh screenwriters uh Blaustein admitted that when he and Sheffield wrote the song She's Your Queen to Be, the two envisioned it sounding a little bit different, more operatic and more traditional. They hadn't thought of the soulful version that Paul Bates did, but when Paul Bates came in and auditioned, they said, Yeah, that's much better. <laughs> well it's great that they weren't married to their idea oh, and yeah. were, were flexible enough that they could say, hey, that's better and go with it. That's that's right. signs of, of a, a good screenwriters yeah. i would say that they can make that change well then being from saturday night live they're used to making changes on the oh, fly and rewrites true. and knowing what, what's funny and what's going to work more than what's on the page uh in a real setting that's true and right around that same time right before he sings what uh, famous person choreographed that dance routine sir that would be paul abdul that would be paul abdul who at that time is still a teenager right right and a laker girl yeah. who basically bluffed her way through an audition exactly that she knew what she was doing and she got to choreograph yep that entire african dance scene which she said she knew hardly anything about <laughs> right yep i read that same thing <laughs> yep it said paul landis asked for whoever was choreographing for janet jackson nasty right and they brought but, paul abdul in he said what are you a teenager she said yep <laughs> But yeah, oh. one of the mo- one of the most famous dance sequences uh, in movie yeah. history, I guess. Definitely, and in fact, before I researched it and found that when they came in and started dancing, just as I was making little notes, I actually wrote down Alvin Ailey question mark. Right, right. As, as and then was like, no, just a teenage Laker girl <laughs> uh, putting all these people together. Uh, anyway, right. Well, talking about some discrepancy, you know, there's one story circulating circulating around the internet that the choreography was actually just thriller choreography sped up. Ah. But of course we know that's not true. The only correlation is that John Landis directed the music video for thriller and he directed coming to America, but there are two different choreographers. If it had been true, it would have been lawsuit number six. Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure that Paul Abdul didn't say, Oh, let me just watch the video for thriller and just make, Say that's an African dance. He'll never know the difference. Yeah. So Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson, you know, she's, right. she's, she's just switching family members. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about some favorite scenes. I'll let you go first. Oh, I would love to go first. And there's one other person who this is his very first oh, yeah. uh, famous uh, film role, who which leads into my favorite scene, the uh, first scene in the barbershop. There you go. Uh, my T Sharp, <laughs> name of the barber shop, right? And uh, sitting in the barber chair is who? Timothy Cuba Gooding Jr. Pretending to get a haircut, right. a scissors float two inches above <laughs> his head, <laughs> cutting around, and never seemed to actually touch him. There's and he's yeah. just smiling as the our our friends in the barber shop are having their first boxing argument. Right. Uh, uh, this is not the one that leads to one of the more famous quotes later on. This is the the first. Uh, 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 boxing argument they were having right that one and then the second one uh the uh when he's talking about how old joe lewis was mm-hmm. he, he asked frank sinatra came into the <laughs> to the shop frank sinatra ain't never been in the shop dr, dr. martin luther king 
the, the king, Dr. Right, Martin, Martin the king, the king right. uh, had come into the shop and, uh, and, and uh, uh, I forget who it was that he asked about Joe Lewis. He told him, he said he was 130 something year, years old, <laughs> but the famous, the famous line, of course, when Saul, the, uh, uh, with Eddie Murphy, the Jewish mm-hmm. guy, when he's talking about Joe Lewis, it says, what about Rocky Marciano? Yeah. And he goes, Rocky Marciano, Rocky Marciano. Every time we start boxing, white man got to pull Rocky Marciano out. That's they won. That's they won. And he says, he he kicked Joe Lewis's ass. And Arsenio goes, yeah, he did. He did. And uh, that that scene always makes me always makes me laugh. Yeah. But um, and I've kind of combined two different barbershop scenes there with him. But both of them are just outstanding. Oh yeah. And uh, and I really got the impression. You don't know how much of it is true. Um, you really got the impression that they a lot of that they were just kind of making up or at least oh, yeah. adding on yeah. to whatever oh, was yeah, in yeah. the script. And uh, I did have to look up the one person that no one knows, right? <laughs> which right. is uh, the character name is Sweets in the barbershop. Mm-hmm. But you have Eddie Murphy in disguise, you got uh, Arsenio Hall in disguise, you got Eddie Murphy as a Jewish guy in right. disguise, and then you got another guy there who, who he's the one that keeps saying Martin Luther the King. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's Eddie Murphy's childhood friend, Clint Smith. Uh, Clint Smith, right. exactly. So um, he would go on to take. Um, he's done some producing and uh, a few other things. hasn't had a super long career, but he's he's still doing things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, grew up with with Eddie Murphy, and that's how he uh, he kind of got that role, that classic iconic. Oh yeah. Role, um, and some of his lines that will live forever. Yeah, Sheffield said one of the screenwriters said it was Murphy's idea to portray the multiple characters in the barbershop and Clint Smith and Eddie Murphy would do a sketch called Clinton and Edmund where they were two neighborhood barbers, but they're also pimps and showbiz performers, but they talked like these guys for hours and hours. He said, so it was time to write the barbershop scene. They said it was easy to reference. So they just kind of let them be those characters that had been seeing them do over and over again. What about you? What's one of your favorite scenes? Oh man, there's so many. I think we talked about the all the barbershop scenes are classic. Um, I love the the rally with Randy Watson and the <laughs> Reverend. Uh, the Reverend every time he's on just makes me laugh. Uh, you know, he got. Uh, oh, what is the thing? I can't remember now. You were doing you were doing better impressions than I was, but. Well, he's got two different two different lines, two different quotes that I've always liked. The one is at the rally, yeah. When if if uh, when he just does the whole if, if loving the Lord is wrong, <laughs> I don't, really, don't want to be right. <laughs> right, right. And then the other one, of course, is when he's encouraging her in the house. Yeah, I think that's the party. one at the party. Yeah, and he says he helped kill again. Yeah, get off the eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he Eddie Murphy did. Seem to be having just a lot of fun uh, with those roles and the rally. Um, of course, that famous that boy good, right? Right, that boy good, right. that boy good, yeah, <laughs> that boy good. Sexual talent. <laughs> that um, is, um, and that's that's Clint Smith saying the that yeah, boy yeah. good, and then Eddie Murphy saying good and terrible, talking <laughs> about himself. <laughs> but you know, when we were watching it yesterday, my wife and I were talking about. His singing as Randy Watson is really not that bad. And we were a little, like, curious as to why nobody was really getting into it. I mean, it's not the best, but, I mean, we've, I guess we've heard so much worse maybe since then. 
of people trying to sing in those kind of performances. Well, but, this uh, girl did want to party all the time. Right. Uh, but the other thing, I guess the other thing is at that time, Whitney Houston's song was still pretty popular. So to hear somebody try to cover Whitney in the way that he did was not good. Yeah. And the, um, I think, I think the, the feeling of reading the room is, is just that everyone's kind of, cause he's from there. The right. character, and so they're kind of tired of him <laughs> and his overdramatic right. way. It was kind of, I think the, the way that it's playing, but yeah, he's not, uh, he, he's so over the top with his singing about, about the children, but you're right. 1988. I mean, Whitney Houston's song was probably what, like 86, uh, 85 or 86 for that one. Yeah. yeah so, um, yeah, not that. And, and pe- I mean, people today still don't cover Whitney Houston's song. No. So, <laughs> at least they uh, shouldn't. Or at least they, they, yeah, they, a few try and, and should not. Uh, and Eddie Murphy's definitely one that, that should not, but, um, yeah, the sexual chocolate. I mean, that's one of the T-shirts you'll still find. Mm-hmm. Randy Watson and sexual chocolate. Uh, I almost from... got one a couple of years ago that was uh, Randy Watson World Tour yeah, uh, T-shirt. <laughs> and only someone who was a Coming to America fan would see that and go, right? Oh, oh yeah, that is. boy good. Yeah, that boy good. <laughs> so yeah, those are those are by far the the rally and uh, the barbershop are some favorite scenes. Um, there's just so many great, great scenes. Even the stuff in McDowell's at the restaurant are really good. I had forgotten all of the McDonald's ripoffs that he did. <laughs> I mean, if you would have asked me before, I would have remembered, well, they have the Big Mac, we have the Big, Big Mick. Mick. Right. I would have remembered that. I didn't remember the Golden Arcs. Right. Instead of the Golden Arches. Arches I, didn't, yeah. I didn't remember that one until he said it last night. Uh, I, I don't think I remembered the bun. It's his exact same burger, except they have the sesame seed bun. You right. Know, um, two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, onions, pickles, and a sesame seed bun was the famous McDonald's, McDonald's right. thing, uh, which became its own uh, T-shirt. And mm-hmm. then so this is exactly the same, just without the sesame seeds. <laughs> um, Louis Anderson does a good job. Yeah. As, uh, yeah. You know, uh, working in the working in the shop and uh, just kind of happy to have a job and happy to be there making shakes and um yeah the one of the lines that i've heard quoted a lot and i've quoted before working different jobs was you know first i started off making fries <laughs> now i'm washing lettuce next is whatever it was he's like well, that's when the big bucks start rolling in and that used to be like a constant joke that we would say to each other on different jobs so so I actually read something about that, which uh, since you mentioned it, I'll segue into it. Go for it. Kanye West's song uh, is actually a shout out to that. You're right. This week he's mopping floors. Next week is the fries. Mm-hmm. Is a shout out to coming to America on a gold digger mm-hmm. with with that line. So I thought that was uh, interesting and definitely something I did not know. Yeah, I know. I found it was a lot of uh, hip hop and rap references that pulled either direct quotes or even some sound bites from the movie that they used in their songs. So. I, I also had forgotten until, until watching this, that when Randy Watson, Eddie Murphy as Randy Watson, mm-hmm. leaving the stage, he does a complete full on Elvis impression. Yeah. 
And if you know anything about Eddie Murphy, especially in the eight, in the 80s, he was oh, yeah. a big Elvis big. Presley fan. He had yeah. big paintings of Elvis in his house and things of that nature. And he does a full uh, fat Elvis, you know, legs spread, pointing mm-hmm. to the side of the stage. Elvis has left the building kind of uh, uh, exit there, mm-hmm. which uh, it was pretty obvious why he was doing that. All right. So we're talking about the other characters. I guess we kind of talked about it. We're going back to it. But. I want to say how impressed I was with the makeup even now, all these years later. Like, you know, you can see some pretty bad special effects from 80s movies, even bad makeup. Oh, sure. But, and granted, when the the version that I watched yesterday was not a HD high definition version that I watched. Mine either. Uh, But, um, like, especially the scenes like with Randy Watson. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot he did to change his appearance. I think a little bit of nose work. But his teeth, and Randy Watson's teeth were so much better than Eddie Murphy's teeth. Because yeah, Eddie Murphy has little baby teeth. Yeah, yeah. He has the two big front teeth with the gap. But then right. the, the teeth to the side of that are little tiny baby teeth. Louis Anderson actually has the same teeth as him, which I, I thought about, which is funny. <laughs> and has that same gap. I was like, what is about stand-up comedians in the 1980s, which right. is where they both started, that that's their teeth. But you're right. They completely changed his teeth yeah. as uh, Randy Watson. But I just... I just thought that, you know, we talked so much about the work he did work. to become Saul, but even for those other characters, even looking at the bar, you know, as the barber and uh, Randy Watson, I mean, even the subtle changes, even though you know that's Eddie Murphy, he, it just, it still stands up. I just thought that, you know, once again, shout out to Rick Baker for being such great at what he does. Um, I mean, he's Oscar winner, so he's obviously good at what he does. But uh, I just want to bring that. I was thinking about Randy Watson. I remember looking at his teeth like, man, Eddie Murphy should just kept those teeth as Randy Watson instead of the ones that he has. But uh, going back to McDowell's, so I once again before I pulled up the trivia, I was watching the movie, and there's a scene. I think it might be during the robbery scene <coughs> where there's kind of a close up to the guys behind the counter, and I was noticing the menu behind them, and you know, like I tend to do because I've seen the movie so many times, I'm starting reading the menu items. I'm like, that's not a McDonald's menu. And that's even how McDonald's menus looked. And so, yep, it was, was a Wendy's. <laughs> yeah. And I told, I told my wife, I said, I said, they must have used the Wendy's because you can clearly see behind them, there's the baked potato with <laughs> their option of cheddar and broccoli, cheddar and cheese. And I was like, as long as I can remember, Wendy's has been the only fast food restaurant that ever sold baked potatoes. And that was big time in the 1980s. Yeah. You went to Wendy's and you you didn't get fries. You got the baked potato. Right, right. And I, I read something very interesting about that. When they first, because that's a, a real Wendy's in yep. Queens. Yep. It's no longer open. And when they first went there and put the McDowell style stuff up, yep. closest McDonald's to them sent a lawyer <laughs> to them and was going to sue right. for the McDowell stuff because yep. they thought it was a real restaurant going in at McDowell's. <laughs> and that's how realistic it was. And yep. they had to to them that it was it was they were just shooting a movie yeah and they got permission from mcdonald's to do mcdowell's like they agreed to everything the only stipulation they had was during the robbery scene the bag louis anderson puts the money in had to be white it couldn't be a brown bag like mcdonald's used oh interesting i didn't i see that part yep all right we're starting any other scenes you want to talk about before we start to wrap this one up um any other behind the scenes facts or trivia you pulled up that i might have missed 
Uh, well, I have quotes that I can uh, go for <laughs> go to for days. I always love the scene where he comes out of the bathroom and then uh, uh, the two guys are 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 bowing down to him, yes, thanking him, yes. asking for the photo. And then they ask who are those, and he just says, "Just someone I met in the bathroom." <laughs> met someone in the bathroom, and they were so impressed with you that they wanted to take a picture. Right, that's funny. But the one guy, the main guy doing that, is Vondi Curtis Hall, right? Who's right. gone on to be in a lot of stuff. I did not know he's Arsenio Hall's brother. Oh, I didn't know that either. And that's how he got the role. Eddie Murphy's real life brother is in has a very small scene as well. I think he's standing in one people standing in line in the front of the line when they go to the bathroom. Okay. But he doesn't have actually any speaking parts. But yeah, Vondi Curtis Hall is actually Arsenio Hall's brother. Okay. And um Yeah, I didn't know that at all. Yeah. So that was uh good to know. And... I did know that um or I saw that uh director F. Gary Gray, who's done a lot of movies, he was actually in the rally scene on the front row. Um I think he's actually sitting in front of the barbers in some of the scenes. So, and the, um, another scene that's a shout out to another, um, Eddie Murphy movie is the very beginning of the movie when he walks down to the end of the breakfast table and his father says, you've grown a mustache. Mm-hmm. And that was a shout out to Beverly Hills cop. Right. When Jenny first sees him and says, and questions him about growing a mustache. Yep. Yep. And, uh, so I liked how they weaved in a lot of his former, uh, work, uh, movies because i mean you got beverly hills cop in there you got trading places in there uh but i think that's probably about it the only other thing that i saw was this was 1988 and in 1989 they filmed a tv pilot yep starring tommy davidson and uh i know that paul bates uh who's the queen to be uh singer right was reprising his role correct yeah uh, oha was that his oha name? yeah in the movie and that he was but they said the pilot that they filmed was so terrible <laughs> that they watched the pilot and then scrapped the entire idea to even film the tv show right i mean it's not unusual for a pilot to be bad and they shoot another pilot they cast different actors mm-hmm. uh but this was so bad they just said nope never right. mind and uh, moved on but it did air the following summer yeah, yeah july 4th Happy Independence Day. Here's a horrible pilot you'll never see again. <laughs> we could probably find it on YouTube if we really wanted to see it, but I have no desire to. No, see. no. So the last little note that I have, um, in, tw- in 2015, John Landis revealed, although he liked Coming to America, he felt the movie was too slow, and he requested that Paramount allow him to produce a director's cut for the Blu-ray disc edition, which, have, which would have shortened the film to improve its pacing. Paramount refused, saying the original movie was too successful. Ah, interesting. Yeah. I didn't. I, I mean, it doesn't really feel that long. I mean, it is a two-hour movie. It is. But I don't remember. I can't really think of any slow part. I mean, the slowest paced stuff is really the building the relationship between him and Lisa. I didn't really feel there was a whole lot of extra that could really be trimmed down that much. So it'd be interesting to know what he would thought he was going to trim away, but I can't think of anything that I would say I, I could do away with that scene and not feel like I lost anything. I mean, there are a few bits that have, that were probably funny then, but aren't as funny now, but, um, still right. I, 
I've always loved the showing them the apartment for the first time, and there's the uh, silhouette, not just of the dead guy on the but floor, the cane. but the dog. Well, the ca- the cane <laughs> and the dog. <laughs> yeah, the silhouette of the dead dog. Yeah, shame what they did to that dog. <laughs> shame what they did to that dog. <laughs> uh, I've always, I've always liked that part. The um, I love this movie, which is why I contacted you and requested it. Right. And um, I uh, have a friend of mine at work that we can we can go back and forth, just passing each other in the hallway, dropping "Coming to America" quotes to each other, and uh, and it'd be a pretty long time before we have to repeat one. Uh, That's good. We can we can go back and forth for a while. Uh, it is, um, I think, one of the quintessential nineteen eighties. Uh, movies definitely we just we we did our own separate movie bracket at work which we did actually 64 movies from the 1980s coming to america made it to the elite eight i think it did yeah made it to the elite eight where it lost to i think die hard and die hard is still going strong we're down to the championship in that one which is back to the future versus die hard but back to the future is going to win but coming to america advanced pretty pretty well through that bracket and people everyone would come in and just go oh to America, that's so good and uh and but it's it's i think if you're picking 1980s movies coming to america is in that top 10 yeah of, of 80s movies and the i think for me because i think most of my memories of that were probably early 90s because of being able to get it on vhs and watching it so many times so I actually had to think more. I had to remember that it was an '80s movie until I started doing the. You know, we started when, uh, when he did when we did our bracket to know that. It, but it came out in '88. So thinking June of '88, by the time it finished its run, you know, they didn't release stuff on VHS that early back then. So it was probably, if not mid '89, maybe Christmas of '89 before it even hit video. Yeah, so it really didn't good. launch into video until the early '90s. So. Like I remember it in like my junior senior of high school, which was early '90s. So that's why I don't think I saw it in the theater. I think I saw it later on VHS. So, yeah. But it did do well at the box office. We talked about that earlier. Um, it was the third highest-grossing film that year, behind Rain Man, which was number one, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Wow. And it did do well, mostly positive reviews. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes had gave it uh, or has it as a score of 67% based on reviews from the critics with an average rating of 5.9 out of 10. Um, and Metacritic, it has an average score of 47 out of 100, indicating a mixed or average reviews. But both of those, if you look at the actual viewers versus the critics, I think it's like an 85 or you know upper 80s on Rotten Tomatoes. And definitely in like the 70s or 80s on IMDb. So once again, I think critics didn't really get it as well as the public did. Well, that and that I can see that. And but this is definitely a, a people's movie, right? Right. They weren't but making the it fact for critics. That, and actually, it the did, fact that Roger Rabbit out drew it just makes me a little sad. Though. <laughs> <laughs> like of all things to lose to. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, I think. The guy saw that it did not do a preview for the critics because they did. It was getting poor reviews early on, or something like that. They they didn't want the reviews to be out before it hit the box office, which a lot of movies will do now, where they won't release it to critics before opening. 
because they they know the critics aren't going to treat it very well. Right. right. So it was nominated for two Oscars. You want to take a guess on those? I'm assuming for makeup. Makeup was one. <laughs> and best costume design. Oh, yeah. Which was done by Deborah Nadulman Landis, the wife of director John Landis. It did not win, but it was nominated. Okay. It was just happy to be nominated. Yeah. And then you mentioned the uh, the TV pilot, and we'll finish off by talking about the long-awaited sequel coming <laughs> to the number two America, with many of the original cast members returning and directed by Craig Brewer, who recently directed Eddie Murphy in Dolomite Is My Name for Netflix, is currently in post-production with a projected release date of December 18th, 2020. So coming end of the year. Yep. And do you know, um, and doggone it, I can't remember the actor's name that's playing his son in this movie, but he was on a TV show last year that I liked. It was pretty good called uh, Superior Donuts. Right. Uh, and I know you were was, talking about it. I can't remember his name. He was one of the main characters, as was, and I can't believe I'm forgetting his name as well, guy from Taxi. Judd Hirsch. Also, Judd Hirsch. Dear John was the other thing that yep, I was going to yep. say. The Judd Hirsch owned the donut shop, and then he hired him to work there. So uh, and he was really good, really funny on uh, on that show, Superior Donuts. So yeah. um, it's not surprised to see him getting a, a big role like that. Yeah, he's been in a couple of movies and some other TV shows I've seen him in. He's really yeah. funny. So yeah, they, that's got a big cast. I think they added Wesley Snipes. Um, I saw that. I think uh, was it Queen Latifah? I, can't I didn't Queen see Latifah. Queen Latifah's name. I remember Wesley, and Wesley just worked with him also on Do- Dolomite. Dolomite. Yeah, Wesley Snipes was in that as well. So are you looking forward to the sequel? Uh, yes, I think you always look forward to a sequel of a movie that you really like, but there's always a part of you that just thinks, ah, they're going to screw this up. <laughs> so, um, And part of that, I think, for my generation, for our generation, right. will always be you always wanted more Star Wars movies and toward, until George Lucas gave <laughs> more Phantom Star Wars Menace, movies. And then you went... You never should have made any more Star Wars movies. Right. Or at least you should have just went in a completely different direction uh, and stopped talking about taxation. And you always just have that, oh, I really, really want this. I want more of it. And then uh, all too often they get it wrong. But this is so long. I mean, 1988, you know, to, to now that while it's a sequel, I mean, it's almost like its own standalone yeah. separate movie. And that was the thing. Would you rather have a sequel? or a straight-up reboot without the original cast? Uh, that original cast is so good, mm-hmm. I would rather have the original cast. Yeah, so I would rather I agree. have the sequel. Yeah, I think the sequel is the right, right way to go. I mean, that's what people have been asking for for a long time anyway. I, if they said they were going to reboot it, I probably would not support it because like, te- like the television show, without that cast, I don't think you have the same kind of movie. Because if they rebooted it, they would put it would be Kevin Hart and The Rock, you know, <laughs> playing four different characters and everything, and I would just be pissed off the entire right. time. Right. So uh, yeah, this is definitely the better way to go, and I'm very curious to see. Uh, I mean, they can't portray the barber guys again, right? Because they'd be like 110 yeah. years old. Yeah. I, mean, I I would hope that either they're going to introduce new characters that would be different. So maybe referencing some of the older characters. I don't know. We'll have more to talk about when we have a trailer. But <laughs> Maybe there's a nursing home with uh, Randy <laughs> Watson and the Reverend and all the barbershop right. guys. 
uh, sitting around with walkers uh, arguing about boxing. Or they'll find an old videotape that has some lost footage and they could reprise. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we, didn't, we won't get too much into speculations, but but great movie. We both enjoyed Coming to America. It's one of our favorite movies, favorite comedies for sure. I would say I, I think this is Eddie Murphy's best movie. Would you agree with that? Or you have any others you think would outrank this one? Ooh, um, I mean, I enjoy Trading Places. I think the only one that comes close is maybe Beverly Hills Cop, but it's a different type of movie. Um, I was not as big of a fan of Harlem Nights as the other people I know. Oh, the pinky toe scene is fantastic. <laughs> and uh, and Arsenio Hall and uh, Charlie Murphy shooting the guns and, you know, pop, 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 and then pop, yeah. pop. Just, oh, that cracks me up. But I agree. I, I guess it depends on the definition of of best movie if best movie is i'm clicking the channels and one of those is on which one am i going to stop on mm-hmm. it's coming to america yeah uh but like you said completely different movies beverly hills cop is still a lot of fun 48 hours is, is yeah. still enjoyable yeah. and fun and like you like you said trading places i usually watch trading places just about every christmas because yeah. it's a wintertime scene there's there's kind of uh it's a christmas movie like die hard is a christmas movie right so. um but yeah, coming to but of those, this is the only one I own. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess that gives us the answer. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, it's been good having you on the podcast again, Mr. Ron West. Hopefully, you'll come well, back and do you. another one. Oh, you know I'm coming back because I already called dibs on the Princess Bride. Right. As you wish, my <laughs> podcasting partner. I shall come back at some point. And of course, we'll be back for rapping. I will be back for rapping <laughs> as well. I called him. Thanks again so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to continue the conversation, send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. That's movieviews, M-O-V-I-V-I-E-W-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also share your thoughts by joining the Movie Views group on Facebook, and you can also follow us on Instagram. There you'll find news and reviews about current and upcoming new movie releases, not just the 80s movies we talk about here. Be sure to be on the lookout every other Friday on Facebook and Instagram as well, where we announce the 80s flick we'll be watching for the next episode. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating, leave us a stellar written review, and also hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of our new episodes. And no matter which platform you choose to listen to us on, be sure to check out the show notes to read more fun facts about the movie we just weren't able to fit into this episode. Well, that's all for today. Join us again next time for another 80s flick flashback.